Good morning, friends. Um, welcome back. A uh, special welcome to y'all who are joining us uh, digitally for worship as well. Um, I know that we are a week or two outside of the Christmas season, but with uh, the new year getting started off with all the ice and the snow on the ground, I thought we might take this week to look back on the Epiphany story and see what gifts it could offer us as we begin um, the new semester. Um, for y'all joining us online, just to let you know, uh, a survey will be going out uh, this, this week, similar to the one we sent out last semester, to uh, gauge your interest in helping uh, plan, lead, and carry out these weekly chapel services. It doesn't just need to be a time of, of worship. It can also be a, a laboratory where you get to try a few things out, planning and leading worship among friends. Um, Anything else that y'all need to share before we get started? All right, then let us prepare ourselves for whatever it is that God has in store for us this morning with a, a deep breath in together and a breath out. Let's join together in a word of prayer. God of all peoples, draw us together as the Magi were drawn to Bethlehem that we might see your glory displayed in the people you have gathered here and in the time you have given us to journey together this semester. This we pray in the name of the Holy and Blessed Trinity, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn, Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, uh, either 275 if you have the book handy or on the walls around you. Stand in body or spirit as we feel led and sing together.
you can have a seat. And before we hear the words of Holy Scripture, let's join together in a, a word of prayer. Glorious God, whose bright star led the Magi to Christ, lead us deeper into your heart as Scripture is read and as Christ is proclaimed. As the Magi offer their gifts to Jesus and his family, so too open your wisdom and grace to us today. Amen. Our reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star in the east and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi, and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they, heard, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in the east, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This isn't part of the sermon, but I saw a headline this past week where Pope Francis officially declared that long sermons were burdensome and that he encouraged his priests to preach for no more than eight minutes. Um, you don't need to pull out your stopwatches, but I've done my best to take Brother Francis up on his advice. For those who keep the church's liturgical calendar, Epiphany is one of the major holidays of the year. It marks the end of the Christmas season, and it bridges the gap between the celebration of Christ's birth and the living of the life of Christ through his baptism, the confronta uh, uh, confronting temptation that leads us into the Lent and kicks off the calendar. And I'm, I'm a fan of the calendar, and I love most every holiday, especially I love church holidays, and I take any excuse I can to make a big to-do and to celebrate something— and I understand most every other church holiday. We know what happened on Christmas and what makes it so special. And we know why we celebrate Christ's baptism and the transfiguration and Lent and the drama of Holy Week and Easter and Pentecost and All Saints and Advent and all the others. But this year, Epiphany stumped me. 
What makes this particular episode in the life of Jesus worthy of its own major holiday? What exactly happened when the Magi visited the Holy Family, and what difference does it realistically make to our own souls and our discipleship? The visit of the Magi is usually touted as the first time Christ was revealed to the Gentiles, the epiphany part of epiphany. But sitting with the story from Matthew's Gospel, I don't think Scripture can back that up. I mean, sure, God did catch the attention of the Gentile Magi, and they were guided by a star, and eventually they did encounter Christ, but what exactly was revealed? What was understood? What did the Magi get out of it? The Magi certainly knew that the child was important, but Matthew gives us no indication that the Magi understood exactly who this child was or why he was important or what he would do or what it meant to be in the presence of him and his family. We also have no evidence that this encounter affected them spiritually. In 2 Kings, Naaman, the Syrian general, took home a pile of dirt from Israel so that he could worship the God who healed him on that God's own soil. But we don't see the Magi doing anything like that. They came, they saw, they politely paid their respects, and then they left. They don't become disciples, they don't become proselytes, they don't become apostles. Another explanation for what happened at Epiphany was it, uh, it was simply a fulfillment of prophecy. After all, Isaiah 60 does promise the exiled Judean community that once they return home, the wealth of nations would stream to their homeland, that their oppressors would rebuild what they had destroyed, and that foreign kings would be drawn by the brightness of Judea's new dawn bringing gold and frankincense with them, along with camels and flocks, all to inaugurate a beautiful age of peace and prosperity where violence shall be heard no more in their land, nor destruction or devastation within their borders. And yes, the Magi came from a foreign land, check, and they perhaps represent a government or a people that had ruled Judea at one time, check, they bring, gold, they bring gifts that do include gold and frankincense, check. But even as the event is described in Matthew, it's hardly as lavish as Isaiah dreamed. This visit itself doesn't restore the people nor the kingdom, nor does this event lead to that time when violence and devastation are heard no more in their land. In fact, this exact visit directly leads to unimaginable devastation and heartbreak for the people of Bethlehem. And, and zooming out, the God I know is not a box checker who organizes the world and arranges encounters just to neatly fulfill something a prophet said hundreds of years prior. Nor am I content with the idea that Matthew just gave us this encounter so that Jesus' royal status or eventual death could be foreshadowed. And so we're back at that first question. If the visit of the Magi didn't result in their spiritual reorientation or recognition of the incarnation of God, 
And if it wasn't just a fulfillment of prophecy for the fulfillment of prophecy's sake, what happened that day that made it so important that it would work its way into Matthew's gospel and that it would end up with its own holiday that would include them on Christmas cards and nativity scenes and children's pageants in perpetuity? Something had to happen. In Matthew's gospel, the star is no mere coincidence. It does lead the Magi directly to Jesus. I mean, their visit is simply too rich of a moment not to have some sort of payoff. As I wrestled with this story the past month, one idea I found myself playing with is that we might simply never know what that payoff was. Whatever truly happened in the hearts of the Magi or not will always remain a mystery. Whatever impact this visit had on the Holy Family, besides maybe giving them the funds necessary to flee to Egypt, will remain a mystery. Matthew doesn't even try and reconstruct what might have been said or thought that day by any of the parties involved. Assuming this visit took place at all, perhaps the true spiritual payoff of the encounter was known only to those who lived it. And at that, perhaps only after years or decades later in prayerful retrospection. Perhaps God's true plan and intention for the Magi's visit to Bethlehem will always be a holy mystery to us. And I think there may be good news in that. Maybe that's the point. Maybe this year we are meant to sit before a wonderful and a colorful but an inscrutable holy mystery and then sit and wonder about the holy mystery we may be participating in right now. God's true intention for this or any moment, any encounter, any semester may be and perhaps remain a holy mystery. This semester we will study and practice and learn and research and teach and write we will prepare ourselves and our students for ministry, for lives as disciples, prepare them for critical thought, for lives as peacemakers and justice seekers, and we will follow through on our prayerful and well-intentioned syllabi and degree tracks. But let's just take a moment to step back and wonder. Most of the time, we like to think we know what, what we're doing and why. But how aware are we of what God may be doing? How aware are we? How aware could we actually be for what God may be preparing for us? What God may be setting up through our long hours of study and preparation and our many chance encounters? How much of this semester is a holy mystery? Friends, go about this semester diligently and go about it faithfully, but I encourage you to go about this semester wondrously because we do not yet know the full story that God is writing while we live and work and serve together here. And for the wondrous mysteries that we have been written into, I say thanks be to God. And amen.
The sermon may be over, friends, but I believe the Holy Spirit is still speaking, and I encourage you to keep your ears and your heart open for what God may be saying to you this morning as we uh, stand in body or spirit and uh, proceed to our next hymn. You'll find it either on page 273 in The Faith We Sing or on the, the screens around you. We are invited to the table. Here at Eastern Mennonite Seminary, we practice an open communion table where all who follow Jesus are invited to partake. We remember that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, when you share bread together, remember me. Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. When you drink it, remember me. I invite you to read this litany with me before we join together at the table. Will you read in unison? God of us all, we thank you for creating us and for loving all which you have created. Even when our love for one another and for you failed, your love for us never failed. 
you still called to us. You called us together. And by the bright star of your love, you have called us to this table, where your glory is revealed in the hearts of... brothers. I apologize. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who came to us as one of our own and met us at tables like this, sharing meals and our human condition. He accepted the worst treatment we could offer and responded only with forgiveness and love and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit, binding us together with all the children of God around the world and around your throne. We thank you for this table where servants become friends, where enemies are made partners, where strangers become neighbors, where your family gathers and grows in the glory of your everlasting love. Draw near to us as we draw near to one another and draw us deeper into your love. This we pray in the name of the Holy and Blessed Trinity. Amen. God of grace and love, your faithfulness roots our lives, holding us with patience and grace. Your mercy and goodness overflow each day, filling us with a harvest of love. Thank you for this bread of Christ, blessed by earth, hand, and heaven. Thank you for this cup of Christ, blessed by earth, hand, and heaven. May your spirit feed us with this bread and satisfy us with this cup, nourishing our bodies, minds, and spirits. Amen. You are invited, if you wish to participate in communion, to come to the table at the front and to eat and be nourished by this bread, drink and be satisfied by this cup. There is a gluten-free bread option that is available. I invite those serving communion to come up now and for you all to follow should you wish to participate.
We bless you, O God, for your healing love and your gift of salvation, for your gracious gifts of bread and cup. We bless you for nourishing us in the love of this community and for sustaining us in hope. We pray for your strength to prepare us for your service as we offer to you our lives of worship and witness in the world you have made. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn together before we go back into the day's labor is See Whose Glory Fills the Skies. You'll find it either on page 274 or on the walls around you. Let's stand in body or spirit as you feel led and let's sing together.
Now may the grace of Christ attend you, the love of God surround you, the Holy Spirit keep you, that you may live in faith, abound in hope, and grow in love both now and evermore. Amen.